The content of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only, and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's objectives, financial situation, or needs. Listeners should consider obtaining independent advice before making any financial decisions. Hi, welcome to another edition of Health Kick. I'm Tim Borum. Well, today we're talking all about sperm, of all things, which I guess uh, makes a nice break from coronavirus. To be specific, we're talking about sperm selection for uh, IVF, in vitro fertilisation procedures. And I've got with me Alison Coots, the uh, head of Memphis, to talk about the wonders of procreation. Now, Memphis comes into the story because it's developed a device called Felix, to separate the good sperm from the duds for IVF procedures. The thing about IVF is that while it's a marvellous technology, the chances of success are still weighted somewhat against the prospective parents. And it's also uh, expensive. And the more cycles you have to do, the costlier it gets. One way to boost the odds of success is to use the best quality sperm in the first place. You see, there's sperm and there's sperm. Samples with double heads, kink tails or, or even DNA damage just won't do. And, and nor will those incapable of swimming that, that long journey. At the same time, the quality of sperm globally is diminishing, but uh, no one's quite sure why. So, Alison, uh, welcome. Thanks, Tim. A global sperm pool uh, diminishing in, in quality. So, so is, is humankind doomed? Well, that's an interesting question. Maybe, ultimately. Uh, we don't know why, but it could have something to do with uh, the, the degradation of the environment, potentially. And there's more hormones in water supply. There's uh, contaminants all over the place. And then combine that with people putting off having children till they're older. Of course. Uh, that's, yeah. a, that's a pretty bad mix. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's been a, a long journey for Memphis, uh, which, of course, is uh, it's ASX listed. Um, some readers might remember... It used to be known as SNUSET. Um, now, Alison, how, how did you get involved in the company in the first place? It was about uh, 2013. The guys who were running what was then called NUSEP told me that they were spinning out part of the technology and going off with that and doing stuff in Singapore. And they needed somebody uh, essentially to become the non-exec chair. I'd always loved the technology I'm a chemical engineer by first degree, and uh, it, it really made sense to me. And I, at the time, was looking to do something different. I was just, They just got me at a time, and I was a bit of a crossroads. So um, I thought, look, I know that things are going to have some issues with it, but uh, I don't know, curiosity got the better of me, and so I signed up. And the, uh, it's fair to say the company was, was in a bit of a mess back then. Oh, yes. Yes, I knew it was in a mess. I expected... Um, I'd have to unravel various things. I was prepared for that, but perhaps not as prepared as I should have been because it was much more of a mess than I actually expected. Yes, uh, but you put in uh, a fair amount of your own money. Yeah, look, I did over the time, yes. In fact, I was uh, organising payroll from my own funds and uh, it was very, very scary and I um, remortgaged my house and sold down a lot of my micro X shares because I'd actually co-founded that one. And that was very fortunate because I sold at a reasonable price. 
Yeah, it must have been a pretty nervous time for you. Oh, it was very, very nerve-wracking and there was a lot of legal wrangles and uh, I don't want to keep on going on about it. It was just a, a very, very nasty experience. But I could, I tell you, I could just about have a law degree from all the stuff that I, I had to go through and uh, all the legal uh, exchanges that uh, we, we had. Yeah, well, the legal stuff's out of the way now, isn't it? It certainly is. Thank goodness. Yeah. And, and it's well behind us and it's great to have a clean runway. Yeah, okay, great. All right, it's onwards and upwards. Uh, so uh, t- tell us about Felix itself. Um, now, it uses electrical fields uh, to, to sort the, the swimmers uh, from the floaters, uh, so, so to speak. Yeah, I wouldn't say swimmers because this, there's another technique that uses the swimming ability of sperm to separate them. That's called swim up. Yes. Surprise, surprise. But just because they swim doesn't mean they're any good. Um, yeah. that's, that's the issue. Uh, there's a correlation with good swimmers and good DNA, but it's not um, infallible. So um, what I did when I came in to the company and these other guys were doing the protein separations, but there was a cell separation technology that was essentially just on the shelf, and that was the old sperm set. That had gone through uh, some iterations with a previous prototype device, and it was really interesting. It actually uh, created uh, babies, live, live births, and uh, so it, it was a, a really interesting opportunity, but it needed rework, complete re-engineering, because that device was never going to cut it in an IVF commercial clinic for the reasons of uh, the fluid flow. I, I just couldn't use the recirculating fluids between samples because, you know, anybody had a virus could be contaminated to the next one. And it also um, needed to have the membranes changed because they were made of polyacrylamide. So um, I set to work trying to reconfigure it and working out how to make a new device that overcame these issues. Ultimately, we did. But the two things that uh, we use are electrophoresis, which is the separation by electrical forces, uh, and and that's great because the sperm, the really good ones, have net negative charge on the cell surface. It's their cell membrane that has the last molecule on it. It's negatively charged. Besides that, we also have special membranes that select by size. So all the mucky white blood cells and, and, and debris, you don't really don't want, they get left behind. And so what happens is that good sperm get attracted to the anode and um, they go over to the harvest chamber uh, very, very gently and efficiently separated in a six-minute process and then you can pipette out and re- you're ready for um, any IVF procedure after that. Mm, okay, terrific. Now, you mentioned the current methods, uh, and one of them is uh, swim up, which is probably self-explanatory. What's basically wrong with those methods, or how do you improve on them? There are two methods that the labs use around the world. It's called one swim up, one's density gradient centrifuge, and some labs actually use both. They start with DGC, density gradient centrifuge, and then they do swim up. And so each, each process is about 30 minutes, and so you can actually double it and more. And uh, these things, they essentially try to separate out the better sperm from the not-so-good. Two different techniques. Um, both require media. The swim-up, they swim through a media, uh, and the other is that they use a media uh, to kind of create a gradient, and they capture the denser sperm and they both both techniques generally require centrifuge but the DGC requires more centrifuging and that's even more damaging so uh, both are potentially damaging 
Uh, we know DGC is quite swim up, less so, but certainly if they centrifuge, that's uh, that's that's pretty bad. Yeah, okay. So um, if they they have the potential to damage the sperm, well, obviously that's not particularly ideal. Um, it, it, it sounds like the old techniques also take take longer. I guess the world should be your oyster. What what stage of commercialisation are you at? Well, that's what we're hoping and positioning for. We're actually at a very exciting stage where uh, we're getting ready to finalise the testing of the device that's going to be used in the clinics commercially. Uh, this is engineering type of testing, and then we've got a few tests with clinical samples to make sure that it works as designed. Uh, and then we've lined up a few markets that are going to be, we think, the uh, early markets for us that have reg- less regulatory hurdles than a few of the others. And so once we're through the, the, the testing and we have key opinion leaders in the target markets all lined up and we've satisfied them that this does the job and that we make these uh, devices absolutely according to how any medical device manufacturer needs to make a device that's safe and effective, then we're ready to go. So, Alison, t- tell us a bit more about the geographies you are targeting where, where there are low uh, regulatory hurdles. Well, from what we've gathered from our regulatory consultant and from talking to uh people in these markets, including the key opinion leaders. The three that we're targeting very, very immediately, I suppose, is uh, Japan, Canada and New Zealand. Uh, These are important to us because, um, well, Japan for a start is the second largest individual market in the world, but um, it has a low regulatory hurdle. What you've got to do is have an importer or distributor already domiciled in the market, which is easily arrangeable. Uh, Canada has its own health system. It's not part of the FDA, and we're free to go there and actually sell direct, as is the case in New Zealand. New Zealand's a very interesting market because it's um, very easy to serve from Australia, and it's a great test market. Canada's interesting too because they have surrogacy there, so they get um, a whole lot of people from around the world coming to their clinic. I didn't realise that until we were there. Coming on after that, uh, India, an enormous emerging market. We're there with a key opinion leader as well. They're already starting Protocol A as uh, Japan and Canada, New Zealand come on very, very shortly. Uh, they've just signed up. India, we're just working out how to get there, but I think that uh, leave that one for now. Um, US, Australia are next. Uh, You have to go through FDA and TGA, but we're working in parallel with those sort of regulators with uh, what we're doing with the the other uh, more immediate markets. Europe's hard. Um, The changing regulations in uh, Europe under the MDR, which comes into effect in May. uh, So that's going to probably be the last. And China, that's the single biggest market in the world. We've got a key opinion leader there. It has its own health requirements, regulatory requirements, but we're just looking into um, the specifics of how to get there. It's interesting you mentioned China. I mean, uh, it's obviously very populous. Uh, do the authorities actually uh, sort of in, in, encourage IVF? Because uh, they had a one, one child policy not too long ago. Yeah, look, they're very keen, I think. Uh, certainly when we were there in hospital number nine in Shanghai, it was standing room only at the IVF clinic. It was amazing. And they told us that they couldn't actually keep up with the demand. They've got 30% growth year on year. They were adding another 30% uh, 
area so that they could do some of the backlog. And then they said there'll be another 30% demand over and above what they could service. And this clinic alone does more than uh, the whole of Australia combined. So, um, and it's a very, very successful clinic, published papers and all of that. Uh, they're very interested in the, uh, the science of it all too. And that brings me to another point. We've selected the key opinion leaders, not just on things like volume and uh, geography, but also on being at the high end, being really interested in the science, wanting to publish papers, wanting to do the best for um, whatever's possible in IVF. Okay, okay, great. And in order to achieve uh, approval uh, with the local, the Australian TGA and the, the FDA in the US, what, what do you think you, you would have to do? What, what sort of uh, standard of proof will you require? That's a, that's a bit of a moving question at the moment. Sure. Uh, we, we did have a meeting with the TGA. They were uh, very impressed, I suppose, with the technology and its innovation. But the problem is innovation's got a, it's a double-edged sword. You have to actually have a higher level of uh, proof that it's, it's okay, it's going to be safe, and it's um, also effective. So they gave us some pointers, but it wasn't definitive, and there's not... Uh, a group in the TGA who specifically do IVF. So what we're doing now is we're getting ready to go over to the FDA. We're, we're not, not ready yet, and it takes three months after you have submitted your application to get a meeting. But they have a whole group in the FDA who actually specifically look at IVF. Uh, I think that they will give us more specific instructions about what they are looking for. But uh, the FDA is going to set a, a, a higher level of proof than perhaps any other jurisdiction in the world. And uh, I suspect that they will want some uh, clinical trial that might involve pregnancy. I don't know exactly, but and if they do, it will probably involve Americans because um, they always want American populations. Yes, I prefer local trials, don't they? Um, well, they do. They, they, they want to have the ethnic mix that's... Uh, that's sort of reflective of their population. So there's a number of blacks and Hispanics, et cetera. Yeah, okay. But I guess the point is you can go out and sell uh, now uh, in yep. the other countries you mentioned. Oh, absolutely. Well, not not quite now. Uh, we couldn't sell uh, until we've got the device absolutely put through its paces. Oh, sure, sure. But once it's been thoroughly tested, yeah. But once it's been thoroughly tested, we've got all the ticks, then, you know, if the key opinion leaders who have already been testing the device, but without all the ticks, you know, these these are essentially the same devices. While we're doing all the tests, they're actually testing in vitro with uh, uh, their semen samples from the clinics and getting themselves familiar. So they will be absolutely ready to come on if they like the device. That's that's all we need to do. Just uh, start start seeing the device, the devices at the appropriate price, and start our commercialization, full commercialization. The full sales. Yeah. And where do you make the uh, devices? And, and how many have you uh, uh, produced to date? Uh, look, I, I can't tell you the exact number, Tim. Uh, sure. There are two parts of it. There's a console and there's a um, then there's a cartridges. So, look, I can't remember how many consoles we've made. I mean, we're, we're making more. Um, we've made enough for the key opinion leaders who are testing to date. and We've made enough for Hydrix, our engineering uh, developers in Melbourne, for them to do all sorts of testing, including dropping them from a great height and seeing how they break and oh, testing yes. the electrics. And so, you know, I mean, they, they require a lot, rather large number. And we've got another order in for the next batch of key opinion leaders. Yeah, they're the consoles. 
but the uh, they also go with cartridges. It's a little bit like if you think of an espresso machine, you know, like you get the, the thing uh, sitting on your, your bench and you feed it the pods and, they, you know, you have a shot of coffee, each shot is a pod. It's the same here. Cartridge equals one cycle. You get this, the, put the sperm, the media in, you run it for six minutes, prepare out the good stuff and then you throw it away. So we, we've made, oh gosh, hundreds of cartridges and uh, these are also being tested and also we've put quite a number of cartridges to the key opinion leaders who are doing the testing right now. I should also mention Monash IVF, um, also another key opinion leader, but they are kind of like a separate class because they've been an ongoing developer in this process with us. Yes, and uh, Monash IVF, they're a listed uh, ASX fertility company. They kind of have first dibs, don't they, on the device? In, the, in their own markets, which is Australia and Malaysia. So okay. that's the two, two markets they operate in, and they have first dibs for 12 months after the device is approved for those two markets. Okay, great. Um, all right. Now, another area the company's interested in, it's uh, perhaps not as advanced, but that's animal health, because artificial insemination is widely used with, with production animals and high-value uh, horses, I gather. Although not thoroughbreds, because it's illegal. It's, it's not because it doesn't work, it's because it's illegal. Yeah. So we just don't go there. But we think we're getting people to uh, work the market size for us because it's not actually, weirdly enough, it's not an easy statistic to get. But we think maybe another half the market is, um, or maybe even more, is not thoroughbreds. It's, it's eventing horses, it's polo ponies, it's Arab horses. There are lots of... Um, very, very important horses that people will pay all sorts of money for, uh, not just racehorses. Yes, uh, I gather even camels uh, in, in the Middle East, prize camels might be another market. That's true. When I was in uh, Dubai, I actually went past a great big track where they do the camel racing and uh, it's a big thing over there, yes. Yeah. Well, the uh, yes, the company's obviously got a few uh, options there and um, it's... Uh, heading in the right direction? The current Felix device, I, I just let you know, it actually works in horses and cows. We've tested it, but it can only do small quantities. With cows, they've got a, a, a larger sperm, so we just change the filters around. We also change the media around depending on the species. And we've done some optimization of media, but it's easy enough to actually use the same sort of system. But uh, in all these animals, they have copious amounts of, uh, of semen and uh, the, the amount of sperm per mill is also massive. So uh, we've got to actually do a lot of redesign of uh, the current Felix uh, and uh, work out how to how, how to accommodate these things. Although we've got some ideas, we've already started working on prototypes um, and, and scaling it up and we're working with the University of Newcastle, John Aitken, who's the co-inventor of the technology in the first place, and we're also working with uh, the University of New South Wales, who are bioreactor specialists. Okay, so really, uh, it, it's the same principle. The key issue is just the volume. Um, I think you've mentioned to me earlier that uh, in, in in the case of a, a stallion, the uh, volume might be sort of a hundred times. Uh, well, yeah, as, much as, mean, uh, as a typical bloke. Well, that's look, ponies. Um, Newcastle actually have a number of ponies they keep near the airport and these ponies are happy to oblige, these stallion ponies. But um, can they're quite manageable. Their, their quantities, I don't know, at least 10, 15 times um, human. But then when you go up to big racehorses and above, um, it, it can be a multiple 
on that. So uh, we want to be able to accommodate all these different species. And the other thing I say is that once we crack uh, the design for one, you can actually accommodate, you can actually modify it easily enough for all sorts of others. So you say we crack it for horses, we already know it works in cows with fresh semen. It will go into cows, it potentially into pigs, sheep, uh, whatever. So um, the key thing is to, uh, to get this design right to scale it up so that it's uh, able to accommodate the larger volume and be more efficient in its separation, which I know we can do, but it'll take a little time. All right, Alison, well, look, uh, good to talk and good luck in sorting the good samples from the uh, pretenders in either animal or uh, human health. Yeah, look, uh, it's a fun thing to do. i just uh, very lucky to have this job, I have to say. <laughs> it's an unusual one. <laughs> Thanks, Alison. <laughs>